Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. because I'm guessing that most of you or all of you uh, do not uh, are not really familiar with our institute, with our university. Maybe we'll talk about a little bit to present uh, where, where I'm coming from. Uh, and then a little bit about the water problem, what are actually the problems, and then solutions and some examples coming from our institute. And then we'll try to draw my own personal conclusions uh, and if you're getting too tired, we can make it shorter. That's fine. Um, so um, all of you have been in Israel, I guess, right? So you probably know that uh, about 60 to 65% from the total surface area of Israel is the Negev Desert. Um, and only 9% of the population is living in the Negev Desert. So this is the only part of Israel that is uh, relatively, in our scale, um, is um, uh, kind of empty. The rest of the country is really uh, very busy, very, uh, uh, very uh, highly populated. Um, and uh, we are the Ben Gurion University of the Negev. The main campus is located in the city of Beersheba, which is right here. Um, it's a it's a decent size. Again, in Israel city, it's about three hundred thousand people, um, and um, it's one of uh, uh, um, six research universities in Israel, um, relatively young one um, uh, that is uh, representing, I would say, a uh, large part of the country, all the uh, Negev Desert, although a lot of our students are from the north. I mean, it's not. Now, speaking about um, uh, the Negev Desert and drylands, uh, I think that in Arizona, it's something that I shouldn't say because you all know it, but um, when we're talking about drylands, we're not talking about something rare. I mean, about 41% of the earth uh, land area is defined as dryland. It's the UN definition. It's not my definition. And more than 2.2 billion people are living in drylands. So it's a very important part of the world. And we have to really understand how to deal with this part of the world and how to make it better. Um, so back to our university, we were established in 1969, uh, next year we'll be 50 years old. Uh, it's considered to be a young university, one of the youngest universities in Israel. Uh, it's growing fast, we are now about 20,000 uh, students, very dynamic, very um, considered to be very nice and friendly university in uh, Israel. A lot of, of uh, students choose to go to this university. Um, and this is the main campus, and if we uh, move south, about 45 minutes drive, 
uh, in the Negev Desert. We arrived to the uh, Blaustein Institutes for Desert Research, which is the Sdebuker campus of the university. It's a small campus um, uh, with about 70 researchers composed of three institutes, the French uh, Institute, the Zuckerberg Institute, and the Swiss Institute. I will elaborate a little bit about each one of them. We have an international uh, graduate school with about 250 graduate students, master's, PhDs. It's a very international, which is not normal for Israel. Most of the uh, places, the, the, I mean, the, the teaching is in Hebrew and everything. This is like we teach in English. And 50% uh, of the students are international from 22 right now, I think, different countries. Um, so uh, just to um, understand where we are, uh, in, in, in blue, this is the perimeter of the Blaustein Institutes for Desert Research, the Sdebuker campus, and it is located uh, just near the Tsin Valley. This is the Tsin Valley. Uh, here in the corner is the grave of David and Paula Ben-Gurion. Maybe some of you have visited there because it's very popular to visit. Um, uh, so this is a very uh, unique location, as you can see. Uh, personally, I think it's great. Uh, but it's, uh, again, Israeli scale, it's remote and, and pretty far from the uh, main campus. The major idea for us is to deal with uh, uh, needs-based research. And uh, need-based research uh, uh, include uh, food, food security, water, energy, and ecology. This is, um, on a nutshell, the major um, uh, needs that we defined. They're all very important for the future of our, of, um, of our society, of our globe, and these are the major topics that we are dealing with. Um, again, very generally, our mission is to combat desertification and exploring global challenges by bringing together water, food, energy, and environmental research. This is the major um, issue that we're dealing with at the, uh, uh, in short, we're calling it BIDR, um, uh, through our three institutes. So the first institute, the French Associate Institute for Agriculture and Biotechnology in Dryland, is um, uh, uh, focusing on the need to produce more food for growing population. And you know that the population is growing really fast. We have um, uh, 200,000 people uh, um, more in our world every day. And uh, in 30 years, we will be about 9 billion people. And we really need a major innovation um, uh, in how we farm and take care of this population growth. It's a big um, issue. And uh, so the main research uh, of the French Institute is biotechnological solutions for sustainable drying agriculture. And it is being done through two departments. The first one is dealing with the, the uh, soil uh, plant atmosphere continuum. And the second one mostly with aquaculture. Um, I'm not sure that uh, we want to get into all the details, but the idea is to open the gate for arid zone agriculture and really improve our um, uh, agricultural productivity and uh, adapting new crops and the extreme conditions that we have in, in arid lands. Um, uh, so uh, these are the main things that are being done in this group. Um, the other group is focusing in on um, aquaculture. Um, aquaculture. So aquaculture is divided mainly, uh, mainly to fish farming, which is a very uh, rapidly growing field. 
uh, with a lot of uh, what, what we define as cash crop, uh, especially in the desert, and algae, microalgae. Algae can be used for many things, um, and we have a group of uh, professors that are focusing on different aspects of um, different innovations related to algae. Uh, the second institute is the Swiss Institute for Dryland um, uh, Environmental and Energy Research. And I think uh, that I already showed this in a different way. Um, the need that this uh, institute is, is focusing on is to increase the value of dryland to mankind. And considering the fact that I already mentioned, um, I think it's obviously very, very important. Um, they're also doing it in two groups. The, the first group is focusing on desert ecology, and the other one in solar energy and environmental physics. Um, and uh, the desert ecology is a pretty big department. Um, very generally, I'm not going to get into all the details, but they are using desert as model ecosystems for advancing ecological knowledge, uh, conservation, and sustainable development in dry regions. Um, uh, and this is uh, divided to uh, uh, different uh, is divided into um, a lot of studies uh, in in different directions. Uh, pretty pretty cool and interesting uh, things. Uh, we should remember that the behavior of the um, ecosystem is directly um, impact from uh, global changes, climate change, lack of water. Um, uh, uh, changes in food and things like that. So this is all uh, uh, being uh, related. The second group uh, uh, of solar energy and environmental physics is trying to explore way to uh, uh, develop a new type or uh, new uh, renewable energies. Um, and um, there are a lot of uh, physicists in this group uh, and it's moving more and more to nanomaterials and developing new materials for developing energy. The third institute is the Zuckerberg Institute for Water Research. The, uh, this institute is dealing with the need that we all know and familiar with, and this is the fact that water is the, um, one of the most, maybe the most crucial resource, but it's a finite resource. And the demand for water is just increasing all the time. So we really need to find solutions for this um, problem. Um, the main research in this institute is solutions for our deteriorating water resources, again, by two groups. One is focusing a more technical group, mostly engineers, um, desalination and water treatment, and the other, the environmental hydrology and microbiology group. So the first group is developing high-tech desalination technologies for providing drinking water, water for agriculture, and industrial use, um, uh, mostly um, uh, developing techniques, technologies uh, to deal with the situation and to um, improve the desalination, reverse osmosis, and so on. Um, the second group uh, is developing better understanding of the hydrological systems, and that includes groundwater recharge, contaminant transport, wastewater treatment, and bioremediation. Um, now, I think that um, most people are really aware of the water crisis and the fact that the situation is just getting worse and worse. And, uh, you know, there are so many reports and articles written about it that I don't want to elaborate. But maybe in this regard, just to mention uh, one report 
that was published by the UN, I think it was uh, two years ago or so, predicting that uh, in 30 years, 45% of the world population will be living in countries chronically short of water. 45% of the world population in 2050, it's more than 4 billion people. This is a huge problem, a huge problem, just to keep us you know, in perspective to the magnitude of the problem. So why we're facing this catastrophe? First, population growth. This is obvious. More people means more food. More food means more water. Um, how much water we need every, every day for drinking, roughly? Three gallons per person? No, that's too much. Oh, good. Three gallons per, per person. Maybe one gallon per person, something like that. How much water do you think we need to produce our food every day per person? So uh, my numbers are in liters, but um, it's between 500 and 1,000 gallons, let's say. So most of, our f most of our water is being used for food production, actually, okay? It's not about drinking. Drinking, it's, it's, it's almost negligible. I mean, it's, of course, very important, but it's also almost negligible. Um, the second fact is that uh, more people, and more and more people, I mentioned it already, are living in drylands, and the challenge about related to water and food in drylands are, I mean, just more challenges. And we need to improve it. Um, unstable climate, more and more drought, more and more extreme events. And it doesn't matter um, if this climate change is part of a natural cycle or man-made activity. This is for politics. But um, practically, there is climate change, and there is no uh, doubt about it. It doesn't matter why. And that's uh, really a big challenge. And last but not least, inappropriate management of our water resources, both in terms of quantity and quality. Um, uh, you know that a lot of the decisions are being made by politicians eventually and not by experts. And the, the reason to make a decision, not always the right reasons. But this is the way it is. So um, all these together brought us to the situation that uh, uh, we are facing nowadays. Uh, now, I'm not going to talk about developing countries here, but I have to mention it a little bit. So the fact that water means life is obvious to all of us, but I don't think that we really understand the situation in the developing countries. There is a very clear um, correlation between the existence of um, enough water and in the appropriate uh, quality to hunger, uh, uh, disease, and poverty. And in places where there is enough water, usually those three are in much better situation. So, and there are like hundreds of studies that show that. So we know that water quality and quantity are both essential conditions for sustainable life in general, in agriculture in particular, and in developing countries, this is really um, a, a huge problem. Some numbers, again, I'm not going to read everything, but more than one million kids are dying every year from water-related re re disease. And this, of course, mostly in Africa, uh, Asia, some places, Central and South um, America, more than one million kids. The kids are more um, uh, sensitive to uh, water-related disease. Almost half a billion school days are being lost every year due to water-related disease. Half a billion school days. 
Um, since in many countries, uh, uh, water is, is the responsibility of the women, they need to uh, bring water to the, their huts. Uh, that means that they cannot do anything else. Because if they need to fetch water from the spring or from the uh, borehole um, uh, one mile away, it means that they need two trips a day. It means that they cannot do anything else. So um, uh, this is uh, very important. And these are just some pictures from uh, some of our uh, trips and projects in Africa. And I think that uh, you don't need to be a hydrology professor or a medical doctor to say that if you, if you use this water or this water for drinking, your likelihood to be sick uh, is really high. I don't, I don't think that any of us would be happy to drink this water. Uh, but this is what they have. So this is the situation. Now, if, if, if this presentation was given, say, 15 years back, and we're uh, talking about lack of water and water quality problems, we would think about really developing country, uh, countries, rural areas, and so on. But this is not the case anymore. It's not only problem of the poors, and we can find war problems everywhere, even in the richest countries. Um, and we can say now for sure that having money and not having water has become a common problem. Uh, so uh, it's not only problem of the developing countries. And of course, in the western part of the United States, I think that everybody is well aware of it. Uh, we have uh, more and more water problems in Europe. It's amazing. Uh, there were a few months that there were no running water on a daily basis in Rome, in Italy, for example, <laughs> last year. Um, so uh, what can we do to cope with this water shortage? Uh, there are different strategies. I will mention a few of them. We can try to manipulate the natural freshwater cycle, which means ma trying to maximize the output and minimize the... Uh, uh, the, the other way around, of course, maximizing the input and minimizing the output. Output is like evaporation and uh, discharge into the ocean and things like that. It's very complicated to do, but it's doable, and we're trying to do it more and more. Uh, of course, better management of our existing resources, both quality and quantity are very important, and more efficient use of our resources. We can use more recycled water, um, uh, after treatment, mostly for uh, agriculture. We can produce um, artificial uh, fresh water, which is mostly desalination, that in Israel is now the, the most important resource for potable water, but it's getting more and more pop, uh, popular. I don't know if popular is, is, is the right term, but in, in many places around the world. Um, and of course, last but definitely not least, uh, Right education, right, the developing the right technology uh, are also very um, important. Now, looking at this graph that was taken from a report that was done by one uh, of the economists um, in Israel that just passed away uh, last year, um, it's, it's very interesting. This is the uh, water consumption in Israel from the late 50s to a few years ago. And you can see a very, very uh, a dr drastic reduction in the per capita consumption of water in Israel. And this is a unique graph. You can't see it any, anywhere else. And what it means, uh, two things. First of all, it means that Israel is really a world leader in terms of water efficiency. It's, and it's mostly in agriculture. These, this is agriculture. This is total. And you see that most of the reduction is in agriculture. And second... It means that it's doable. It means that um, if it 
could be done in Israel, it can be done elsewhere. So it's not something unique for Israel, okay? And this is very important. Now, again, what the water is being used for? Mostly agriculture. 70, 80, even 90% of the water everywhere is being used for agriculture. So we can actually say not only that water use efficiency in agriculture is a major or the major player in the global water scarcity, but also that practically food and water securities are actually the same thing, okay? Because most of the water is for food production. So we can't really distinguish between the two. Um, saying that, and although efficient irrigation makes business sense because you, you get more crop per drop, more crop per land unit, so it really makes sense. But if we look on the number, the rates of adoption of um, uh, efficient irrigation, the numbers are pretty sad. Even in the United States, we're in less than 60%. So even in the United States, that is very developed country, very technological country, uh, for political reasons and decision makers and whatever, only 60% of the agricultural areas are with what we define as efficient irrigation. And it's not only drip irrigation. Sprinklers is, is, is also uh, considered here like efficient irrigation, relatively efficient, okay? Now, in the countries that irrigate more than other countries, of course, China and India, because of their huge popu population, less than 10% of the irrigation is efficient irrigation. So think about it. Huge amount of water is being wasted for inefficient irrigation. This, this, these numbers are really extreme and makes no sense. Now, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. What do you mean by inefficient irrigation? Ferro irrigation, flood irrigation. Okay. No, no. We, we, we actually tried to adapt it in an experiment that we did in, in the Sacramento Valley. Uh, with, with, uh, it didn't work very well. Uh, Melrose rice, everything north of Sacramento is rice fields. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's being done. We have experimental field with rice that we are irrigating with drip irrigation for years with a very good yield and everything. It just, it just, I mean, here we need to, because, I mean, you're right. Um, when we think about rice, we, we, we think about those terraces in China uh, or in Vietnam that it's all flooded and it's very nice to hike there uh, and take pictures, but um, we can do it with drip irrigation. Um, uh, but in the U.S., a lot of things are irrigating with ferro irrigation. I mean, I mean, all all over California and here as well. I mean, it's, and it makes no sense. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. So from, from one hand, people are really concerned about water conservation and lack of water. On the other hand, so one hand is really concerned and the other hand is just letting the water flow like crazy. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not a politician and I know it's a very political issue. Water rights, you know, constitution, whatever. Uh, so it's not my uh, role to say anything about it, but it's definitely a problem, and eventually it will happen. It's just a question how bad the situation should be before it happens. Well, yeah, and, but, I mean, Israel has a unique stance. I mean, Israel actually made the management of water a national concern. So there's a, so there's a... No, but it's, legally, there's a single law 
that manages water in the state of Israel, which means that jurisdictional things don't happen. You know, I mean, here, every water company and every agricultural organization has its own whatever. There's, there's nothing saying, we should do this. There, th it's more like, this would be nice to do, and then it's if somebody else paid for it, yeah, you're right. for it, blah, well, It's blah, even blah. worse than that, because by, by law, if you own the land, you own the water. Yeah, here. So, here. Yes, here. here. At least in Arizona, I don't know if it's, I don't yeah. know if it's everywhere else. It's more complicated than that. Well, if you own the water from other people's land, which happens yeah. down field, but we'll let you finish. We all have so much stuff. Okay, no, no problem. I, I, it's, uh, we, we're kind of a small family here, so it's fine. Um, yeah, but that's true. I mean, the Israeli system um, uh, is very centralized in, 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 in terms of water. So the, 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 the only, the water rights are owned by the country. No one has water rights in Israel other than the, the, the government. Uh, that's, that's, that's very different than, than, than here. Uh, yeah, it's also a small country. That's true. That's true. It's different. So anyway, um, maximizing water utilization efficiency uh, by irrigation, water application, greenhouses, and, and more and more uh, drip irrigation is really uh, almost like sentences for, from the Bible in Israel. And, and, and more crop per land unit and more crop per drop is something that uh, if you want to be a farmer, these are the, two the first two sentences that you have to understand and remember. I mean, this is like really basic. Um, these are just some examples. These are agricultural villages in the Arava. I don't know if you've been in the Arava, but we're talking in, uh, in this area, we have less than two inch per year of rain. Uh, it's very dry, uh, very hot, even more than in Phoenix, uh, um, uh, because the, you know, this is below sea level. It's, it's very, um, this is the area that connect between the Dead Sea and the Red Sea. That's the Arava. And all the villages there, uh, all the Moshavim are very agricultural, and it's all in greenhouses, uh, all subsurface uh, drip irrigation, and more and more. So there are a lot of activities that can improve the water management in agriculture, even in such dry areas. Um, uh, it's not always easy, it's not always perfect, but um, it's doable. Uh, this is just an example, I think that everybody knows that drip irrigation was developed in Israel and uh, we're getting a lot of credit for that and it also um, became a huge business. Uh, some companies, I think that all of them are not Israelis anymore, they're all sold to some um, um, big, uh, one owned by John Deere, other owned by some Mexican big company that just bought them last year by... I think $2.5 billion or something like that, but I'm not sure about the number. Anyway, what I want to show here is the drip irrigation, that the, the, the principle is to give water and nutrients nowadays, because we are also adding the, the nutrients with the water. Um, the idea is to give them to the plant when and where the plant needs it, and not just flood everything. And, and here is just an example of the development from the mid-60s when it was um, developed till nowadays. Now, I mean, there, there are drippers that are sensitive to the, to the tension of the water in the soil. And they open and close according to the need of the soil. So you can program that. And it's, it's very sophisticated. 
Um, there are a lot of, there are on the average more than 100 patents every year about drip irrigation. So it's not something that is just, okay, a, a pinch in the, in the pipe and it's dripping. It's very, very complicated, very, very sophisticated, um, uh, and there is a lot of room for expansion because these, all these companies now are very international. Um, let's talk a little bit about production of new water. We can divide production of new water to the reuse of treated wastewater and desalination. Um, now in Israel, and, and I had to uh, uh, like, uh, use different numbers because it's, it's an old slide and the numbers are new, but we are um, uh, using 88% of our uh, domestic wastewater, we are reusing 88% after treatment for irrigation. So every drop is being used again and again and again for irrigation, um, and this is a huge issue. I, will sh I think I have another graph to show it. Other countries are using significantly less water for irrigation. Um, what it did for the national consumption of water in agriculture, so we started to use um, uh, wastewater for irrigation in 1993, okay? So till 1993, all the water that was used for irrigation was potable water. And since then, more and more recycled water and less and less potable water. So now we are somewhere here, okay, somewhere here. We are already using more um, uh, treated water than potable water for irrigation. More than 50% from the overall irrigation is by treated wastewater. And this was, of course, a huge um, um, game changer for the uh, water sector in Israel. Saying that, we need to remember that before or when we are using treated wastewater, research is really essential uh, to explore short and long-term potential damage to soils, to, to the crops, to everything, to groundwater. So indeed, there is a lot of research going on to make sure that we're not creating damage. Because there is some risk. Every time that you make changes, there is some risk, and we need to be aware of it. Let me ask this question. So how long... In terms of distribution, because one of the problems in the United States is you got long distances. In Israel, the, the line from the wastewater treatment plant to the ultimate user could be a maximum of what? 100 kilometers? 100, 150 kilometers. Yeah. Is yeah. that because you put more treatment plants up, not because you put everything next to the old treatment plant? Uh, well, first, a lot of treatment plants, and second, yeah, Israel is very small, and you are right. I mean, like, if agricultural areas, because we, I had these discussions with, with experts in the U.S., and they were saying something true, that uh, in California, for, for, for example, you are taking all the wastewater of Los Angeles, okay? It's a big city. But the, most of the agriculture is not in Los Angeles. You have to carry the water very far away, so it becomes expensive. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Okay. No, no. But there's a, there's a difference there. Yeah, the I water's mean, terrible. Well, well, but you don't understand the central... The, there's this... You probably drove over it. It's called the Central Arizona Project. But what you don't realize, it's all downhill, and then it goes uphill, and there are huge pumps. I mean, so there's a lot of... Yeah. So what, what you're saying, actually, and, and, and this is true for, for, for most of this presentation and most of the things... At the end of the day, it's a question of investment, of money. Because 
I mean, of course, that if a farmer need to pay, I don't know, $3 per cubic meter of water, he will not farm. It's not, it's not, but again, we need to eat and we need to drink. And I mean, let's say that we're talking only about drinking water. How much money you would pay for, for, for a, a, a drinking water? Everything. If, if you don't have it, you would, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you would pay everything to drink, right? I mean, it's not something, it's, it's not like a luxury. It's, it's mandatory. So, but for agriculture, we're still in the, in the concept that, I mean, it makes sense only if it's, if, if it's very cheap. But what happens if it's becoming more expensive? Or if there is no water, no cheap water? So that means that your tomatoes and your rice and your potatoes will be more expensive. So there is a balance here, but, I mean, it, my... What I'm trying to say is that as soon as we realize that eventually we'll have to pay more for water, it will be cheaper at the end. Because what usually happens is that you, you understand how bad the situation is only when you really don't have water. <laughs> and then it's too late, and then everything is under pressure, and then you do stupid things. Right. Instead of investing now a lot of money to solve something that will become a very critical problem 50 years from now. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. Any, we, we will be there, for sure. Well, you know, I'm not in, sure... In Arizona, which, of all of those charts, Arizona's probably in the United States, the leader in reusing water. Right, that's now, true. Now, that doesn't make it anywhere close to Israel. Yeah, but, yeah, but, but... But it's so far above. Not but not the right reason. We use them for golf courses. Well, we use them... That's why no one wants to give up their... They feel that... Like well, you actually, it's not 100% true water. because the nuclear power plant, all of the water from... But not for Well, you know this. Yes, but not for agriculture. <laughs> Not, not for agriculture at this point in time, but the situation, and I'm bringing this up <clears throat> because in the city of Flagstaff, originally, they used the wastewater for golf courses. And all of a sudden, people found other uses for the water. And the price to the golf courses has gone up by a factor of 10, as people are now saying, wait a minute, we can use this water for something other than keeping golf courses green. And it's, and I know this because I was on the board of a country club. I have a home up in Flagstaff. And all of a sudden, one of their, their entire budget tilted. That would be a great case study because I don't think that they're going to let go of their rights so that you can no, but they don't, other uses. Yeah, but they here. don't have the right to the water. They're a buyer of the water. It's they, water that comes from, from the Flagstaff municipality. And the Flagstaff said, hey, we got all of these. Initially, they were saying, we, can't, we have no use for this, this wastewater. That was 20 years ago. And now, they've got so many demands on the wastewater that they've turned around to the golf courses and said, hey, you know, we used to be, I think it was 20 cents per thousand gallons or something like that, because golf courses can use a lot of water. Yeah. And then next thing you know, it's $1.30 per thousand gallons. So the, the, the cost to the... To the golf courses and the communities that have the golf courses accelerated dramatically. But I mean, even here locally, as we've continued to expand, there, 
we're not running any, there aren't any new golf courses being built that use recycled water because the cost of recycled water to those golf courses would be prohibitive. Yeah. But the, at the time they allow another developer to put houses in, they have to have a water plan. That's and the true. Problem, it sounds great, but then when they have the water plan, it's 30 years old, they don't let go of it, and it's not a fungible like resource here, and it becomes an antiquated water balance table, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, so I... I, I I we're think that involved in this. We're part of a city. We were. Well, one of us was, and one of us still is on a city commission. That's the Environmental Quality Advisory Board, and this so is one like of no our big power. Ones. No power, but a lot, of, <laughs> lot of, a lot of occasional influence. But this is one of our biggest Which issues. City of Scottsdale. So um, I think that overall. Uh, Everything that you're saying here is very interesting, but it leads exactly to what I'm saying. I mean, it's, it's just a question of, of, of how thirsty we are and how much uh, uh, we, uh, we are willing to pay for the water and if we should wait until we have no other choice or, or not. But um, again, I'm a scientist. So um, this is an example for the largest wastewater facility in Israel, the Shafdan, that treats all the wastewater of the Dan region. Uh, about 140 million cubic meter per year. Uh, what's interesting in this facility is the tertiary treatment, the last treatment after the secondary treatment, which is activated sludge. The water is being taken to um, a set of uh, infiltration ponds. This is an example. They, uh, the water infiltrates through an um, unsaturated area of about 30 meters of sand dunes to the aquifer, and then there is a ring of production wells that... Um, uh, are um, pumping the water straight to irrigation. And the quality of this water, I mean, the, the, the difference be, uh, between the quality of this water when they, after the activated sludge and the water that is being pumped is huge. I mean, this is basically drinking water. We're not allowed to drink them because of regulations, but it's really high quality, extremely high quality, and uh, it's really nice, and we... Uh, um, um, and uh, we, we, we want to do more of that, but the problem is that uh, Israel, that we already mentioned, it's a very small country, uh, we can get more land for that. Because land is very limited, and this is uh, all these ponds are between the city of Rishon Lezion and the city of Ashdod. I don't know if you're, uh, I mean, but it's along the coast, it's very, very expensive land. I mean, you can build their houses and stuff, I mean, like skyscrapers and, and such. So, what we are trying to do is to increase the efficiency, to make this process more efficient, so we can get more water into the aquifer, but keep the right level of purification, which is a big challenge. We're doing it through a lot of experimental work. This is some of the experiments that we're doing in the Shafdan. It goes from lab experiments uh, to column experiments that are still in the lab, to field experiments, hydrogeophysics and sensors and things, and all that is being done to improve the uh, situation. Um, uh, desalination, this is, a, this is from a cover page of an old Time magazine, I think like 15 years ago, uh, telling us that you don't have to be a fish to drink seawater. Um, and in Israel, uh, till 2004, if you wanted to drink seawater, you had to be a fish. Uh, now, uh, just uh, 13 years later, we're desalinating 700 million cubic meters per year. 
which is more than 80% from the potable water demand of the state of Israel. And this is being done through five desalination plants. Um, uh, and uh, this was a, a huge game changer for the state of Israel. I mean, this is something that we can't even think uh, how we would do it uh, without it. And we're, I mean, we're talking about something that just started the first time in 2004. Now we are planning another two desalination factories in this area. Um, that some of it, uh, some of the water that will be desalinated will be taken into the Sea of Galilee because the Sea of Galilee is in such a catastrophic situation. And originally, the Sea of Galilee provided 30% of the water consumption of Israel, now zero. But still, it, it's just getting drier and drier. It's, it's, it's a big problem. Um, desalination, I, I will go really fast. I don't want to get into the details. But it's a very interesting process. Uh, these are three of the factories. First, you take uh, water from the sea. There is a pre-treatment to make the water ready for the, for the reverse osmosis for the uh, membranes. Then you go for the reverse osmosis. This is the major process. And then because the water eventually um, uh, is just pure water, H2O molecules, and you can drink it like that, we are adding salts. Where the water is flowing through um, uh, sandstone uh, filter, get more calcite into the water, and then to the uh, uh, national water carrier. Okay, that's the system. Uh, this is a typical reverse osmosis hall. It's a big hall full of these columns that are uh, in, in each one. There is a membrane. Uh, the membranes. We have a lot of scientists work on improving the membranes. It's, it's a very complicated um, scientific issue. It's not just a, a piece of paper that the water flows through. And um, uh, uh, one of the major problems with the membranes is, it, we call it biofouling. It, it's the um, development of, of, of uh, biomass on the surface of the membrane. And um, this uh, biofouling uh, is uh, reducing the flow through the membrane. And this means that we need to increase the pressure. Increasing the pressure means a lot of energy, means a lot of money, a big problem, and we have a lot of studies how to minimize the biofouling. That's, uh, that's also very interesting scientifically, but practically it's very important for the reverse osmosis uh, process as well. Um, one of the things that we're trying to keep in mind is that we need to be very multidisciplinary, very, very interdisciplinary. Our scientists are coming from, I mean, you know, we have uh, chemical engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, environmental engineers, chemists, physicists, mathematicians, geologists, soil scientists, uh, microbiologists, biologists. I mean, all these are working on, on, on the, these, pro, these uh, needs and the problems that I mentioned before. Um, on every given moment in our institutes, there are around between um, 120 and 150 running projects. Uh, about 40% are international with other countries. Um, it, it goes from very small scale to really large scale. Uh, we have projects that are really pure science, trying to understand mechanisms and processes to very applied studies that really come from the industry that is asking us to solve problems. 
Uh, we're developing technologies both for the developed world, like Israel, the United States, but also decentralized sustainable solutions for remote areas, which is very important, including some um, remote farms in the Negev, places in Africa, and so on. Again, I mentioned the multidisciplinary approach. Um, very important for us is the fact that we are training the next generation of water, food, energy, and environmental experts. This is one of our major things that we really try to invest the maximum at because this is very important. And it doesn't matter if these people will end up in the academia or as consultant or business people, but the, what they will get at school uh, in our school is very, very important. Yeah. There was a recent development um, that basically was able to extract water from air, even dry air. It, uses, it basically uses a film. Uh, it's solar driven. Yeah. And one of the recent bits of interest is that particularly in northern Arizona, um, there are small populations that have no access to water. So there's actually a water truck that drives along and gives water to these communities. These are normally Native American communities, and these things have the ability to generate yeah, uh, a, I, I, a liter or two an yeah. hour. But Look, I, I, uh, I don't want to make a full presentation about it, but uh, to make it short, this technology exists for something like 150 years, and it's being used in South America, like in Chile, for 50 years. Uh, um, to, to, to take the, the water vapor and fog from the air and transfer it to uh, liquid. Um, the, 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 the advanced ideas is just to make it more efficient. Um, uh, so if you go to Chile, those of you who are traveling in the Atacama Desert, and if you never did it, I highly recommend it, uh, along the mountains you see those huge nets that are to capture the fog that is coming from the Pacific, and, and, and uh, make it water for the communities. So, and these are like 50 years old instruments. There's a lot of research about it. But it's true that in the, in the last few years, and we're involved in, 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 in very interesting research about it with a scientist from a Northwestern University, group of scientists, um, they, the, 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 the nanotechnology enable us to, to plan materials that are much more efficient in the amount of water vapor that can be captured from the air. So you can um, produce much more liquid. Now, I can't tell you how, if it's, if it's going to be efficient enough for a community. I personally, I find it hard to believe. I, I don't know exactly the, the, the humidity. And, but of course, in dry air, the amount of water that you can produce is much smaller. For example, we are trying these systems within greenhouses because in greenhouses, you get huge humidity, right? All the um, evapotranspiration. So you can capture the water within the greenhouse and bring it back to the plant. So it, it's, it, it's, and there are a few companies, including in Israel, that are working toward this direction. Personally, I'm not sure if it's in the level that it can replace these trucks. But it's, it's uh, something that people are working on. Uh, some ideas that were developed in our institute, this is, for example, a Verozone mo monitoring system that was developed to track contaminants 
Uh, in the unsaturated zone above the aquifers, before they reach the aquifer, this system was patent, uh, has a patent also in the US, and it's already been installed in more than 60 different sites, including in the US, uh, also in Australia, in, in, in Namibia, in many, many places. For example, below gas stations, uh, below agricultural fields, to see if there is a lot of um, uh, leachate of contaminants uh, at depth. Uh, uh, this is a nice system. We are deeply involved in a lot of bioremediation schemes uh, in Israel, especially in old um, military industry sites where there is a lot of contamination with explos explosive perchlorate and things like that in groundwater. And um, this is sometimes, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, all the uh, um, pumps in the city of Herzliya are shut down because of TAS factory because of high concentration of perchlorate, for example, uh, which is a, a fuel that is being uh, used for missiles. Uh, so th these are things that, that, that really happen everywhere, and we, we are de developing technologies for remediation of these parts of the aquifer. We are um, involved in uh, developing new concepts to understand the relationship between the subsurface and the atmosphere, um, uh, and we got into some very uh, interesting approaches to understand a lot of the anomalies that people are seeing about greenhouse gas emission and en enhanced evaporation. I'm not going to get into the details, but we're also using climate control laboratories where we can mimic different cl um, uh, climatic scenarios and see how it impacts um, the, um, uh, the emission of uh, greenhouse gas and uh, the level of evaporation uh, with wind, without wind, with different cycles and so on. Uh, we are deeply involved in the problems of the Dead Sea. I don't know if you are familiar with it, but the Dead Sea is shrinking uh, dramatically about at 1.1 meter every year. And uh, since uh, 1989, we start to see um, sinkholes that are being developed. We have now more than 5,000 sinkholes Along the western part, uh, it's, it's a huge problem. Uh, we are doing some really cutting-edge science to understand the dynamic and kinetics of this process using uh, CT machines, uh, MRI machines, and things like that. Um, as I mentioned, we are developing off-grid wastewater treatment uh, facilities. Uh, this is one of the facilities, for example, that we built in one of the uh, best uh, goat cheese farms in the Negev. Uh, every time we got some cheese, so it was very good, pro uh, worth it. They, they have really good cheese. Um, uh, no, but the, the, I mean, this is a big problem because they're all off-grid, and uh, we need to take care of their waste. Uh, uh, gray water system, this is a gray water system that was developed in uh, our institute. Uh, uh, only in Sdebuker, where, where I live, we have 22 systems like that. One of them in my, it's actually not backyard, it's front yard. Um, it works for 10 years now, and uh, it's, it, it works great. Uh, and I use about 400, no, less, 300 liters per day for irrigation in my house. So it saves 300 liters per, per day, which is quite a lot. Um, we are developing also different uh, unique techniques to explore the spatial and temporal distribution of contaminants in, in aquifers. This is like a multi-layer sampler, passive multi-layer sampler that enable us to get the 
vertical distribution of contaminants in aquifer, in opposed to just the old-fashioned pumping that mix the water from all depths and give you one value. And you don't understand where the problem is, actually. Um, so trying to uh, summarize, I mean, I try to summarize the, the type of thing that we're doing. So we have desalination-related studies, a lot of studies. Um, we have energy-related studies. We are also uh, working a lot in efforts to make waste, to, tr to transfer waste to energy. This is a very important part of our uh, research. Uh, and of course, a lot of hydrological innovation with patents and ideas uh, and some uh, stuff that is already being commercial. Um, uh, some companies that were uh, constructed based on our technologies. But we are universities, so it's not the main thing. I mean, uh, it's nice if there is a patent and there is a company, but we're not there to make money. So, and this is a big difference between the university and uh, the, the business people. That I think this is one of our advantages, actually. Uh, we believe that uh, uh, science can, be, can and should be more than just pure science, and we work in developing country. Uh, this is, for example, a project that was done in uh, Zambia, uh, in southern Zambia, where we uh, built um, a community garden. Uh, these people, for many years, lived on either cassava or corn. That's it. They had nothing else. Uh, it's not the best nutrition. Um, and this garden with tomatoes and onion and pepper and all that, with drip irrigation, is really something very nice um, that we helped to um, establish. Uh, um, we also uh, believe that uh, uh, science, especially this kind of science, can be uh, accelerator for peace. We have a lot of projects with our neighbors. Uh, these are just two examples, but we have a lot of projects. Some of them, by the way, are funded by USAID. Uh, this is very important. And in, in our international school, we also have uh, students from Jordan and from the Palestinian Authority. Uh, uh, we think it's, it's, um, it's, it's, very, it's very important. Uh, again, this is being done in our international school. Um, uh, I already mentioned that. These are some of, our, of the activities of our students in Africa. Uh, we are here drilling well. This is, I'm not sure if it's, I think it was in Zambia, this one, again, but in the last few years we were working in Uganda. Uh, it's, uh, this is for, for example, the, the well is here, and it's going back and forth, back and forth for like a week until you have a well. I'm not going to get you to the details, but it's very hard work. You end up with a lot of blisters. Uh, but it's, it's, it's very important that it won't be just cutting-edge science with, uh, because for billions of people, I mean, they, they don't really care about our cutting-edge science. I mean, they just don't have water. Um, we are trying to make the maximum community outreach, act outreach activities. We work with the high schools uh, in our area, uh, making water-related projects and, uh, and the ag uh, agriculture agricultural-related projects. Uh, we work with the Bedouin community uh, around us. You know that uh, most of the Bedouins are in the Negev desert, um, and we think that uh, we should work with them. It's very important for us. It's not always easy, if to be honest, but we think it's very important. Um, some of the challenges that we are facing, uh, I think that we all agree that it's all about to have the best people. 
And uh, it's very challenging. I think that uh, you are the youngest here, I think. And uh, uh, we need to uh, bring the uh, young and bright. And uh, let's say that uh, I compete uh, 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 with the big universities in the big cities of Israel, like Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, Haifa. So I need to bring you or people in, like you to the heart of the desert Instead of being in the big city with the very great nightlife and all that, it's not easy. So to make it, we need to be very, very attractive. Uh, it's not easy. I'm telling you the truth, but we're doing quite well considering the limitations, but we want to do even better. Uh, same with faculty members. We need to convince the best faculty members to come to live in the desert. It's not always easy. There's families, there, you, know, you, you need to find work to the two partners and, and so on and so forth. But overall, we're doing, I think, quite well with a lot of achievements. So um, I'm just sharing, but I'm not complaining. Um, uh, we are doing good. So uh, to summarize, because this was the title, uh, can we do better? I think that we can do better. Um, uh, but we first need to, re to remember that there are no miracles. I mean, there are no solutions that, OK, somebody will come. Okay, let's do one, two, three, boom, it's done. It's not going to work like that. There are a lot of things, takes a lot of time, and there are a lot of challenges along the way. I uh, divided it between developing and developed countries because it's different type of challenges. In the developed countries, um, I think that improving management and decision support system is the major thing because in most cases we have the technologies, but we can't make the right decisions. Uh, adopt the right technologies and select the important research topics to explore. Again, there is so much research going on, but we need to better define the needs and focus our research on our needs. In developing countries, it's a big mess. Uh, I'm working a lot in Africa, so believe me, it's a big mess. Um, uh, even basic knowledge is, uh, is, uh, just doesn't exist. And uh, we need also to um, implement different type of technologies because the technologies that we're using here will not work there. Uh, it need to be low-tech, robust technologies. Otherwise, it won't work. Uh, so in summary, I think that we see that water is a very uh, precious resource, but it's a very scarce commodity. And it's also very unstable resource, uh, as we know. So we need awareness, we need education, we need innovation, we need technology and investment. And when I'm saying investment, it's not only investing the money directly, but investing in all these issues. Um, so I think that the food water crisis is something that we cannot prevent. We just can't. It's there and it's going to be worse. I don't think we can really uh, change it. But we can work together, and I think that this is a key because a lot of the time we're not working together. The industry people, the investors, the farmers, the decision makers, and the water experts from the academia to find the appropriate solutions uh, to cope with the situation. Um, in Israel specifically, I think that it can and should be the bridge and the opportunity to peace and cooperation. But this is a specific for the Middle East. Um, last, that's the last thing. I think that it's very important that we will remember that to prevent critical mistakes and in many cases irreversible mistakes, research is really mandatory. 
And unfortunately, there are numerous examples what happened when people didn't invest in research. It's usually cost billions of dollars later, or even that won't help. So it's very, very important. Uh, one thing that was developed in one place, sometimes it's not enough for another place, and this is very, very important. Uh, so I will, I think it's enough. Uh, it was all on a nutshell, but I think it's, it's becoming long. Um, and if you have any questions, I am more than happy to try to answer. I don't know if I can, but I can try. That's it. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.